Okay, are you ready? Yeah. Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside, and I just read a new book called Why We Need to Be Wild by Jessica Carew Craft. So excited to have her here today, the author. Welcome. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be talking to you today. Thanks for reading the book. Yes, it's such a beautiful one. I love that the fox is sitting on the cover and then you talk about the fox throughout the book. So it's just such a beautiful one, why we need to be wild. And you have really made this huge life change. I think it's one of the things that a lot of us think about, which is pulling away from the screens, pulling away from the technology, going back to these things that seem more primitive, but really are helpful for our whole being. Uh, We think about it, but you actually did it and have made just some substantial changes. So do you ever look back? (laughs) Do you ever regret any of it? or, Or do you feel like pretty settled in this new way of living? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, I would also call this this book, it's sort of like a veiled midlife crisis book, right? Like <laughs> memoir, eat, pray, love, woman goes out to find herself and mm-hmm. in the end, you know, kind of redeems herself and, and finds a new community. Um, but no, I mean, I was just so deeply called to be more immersed in nature and to learn all sorts of new skills. And I feel like it has only enhanced my life because the, the truth is, is like, I, I haven't given up everything, right? I haven't left civilization the way that some of the people in the book that I depict have done, mm-hmm. right? They're kind of living with mostly paleolithic, what we might call stone age skills, right? They've, they've given up the coffee shops, the jobs, the cars, and they are making it on the land, um, almost sort of modern day hunter gatherers. I haven't fully done that. You know, I've done that for days at a time. Um, it's certainly like part of my lifestyle is to absolutely get out kind of in a, in a very basic way into nature every single day, spend hours out there. That's my kind of personal commitment to spend at least an hour out in a natural open space. But I'm still very much embedded in the modern world, you know, with computers and cell phones. And I have children who go to institutional schools. And so the whole thing is sort of like a a dualism now Hmm. where I've got this sort of wild backdrop and I have uh, a lifestyle I can always, you know, escape into. But for the time being, while I'm raising kids, it's just, it's just been too hard to kind of do that on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, And they didn't want to, you know, like children, they, you know, they see what's available in the world. And while both my kids are able to identify all sorts of plants and they can track some animals and they have some basic survival skills, which, you know, we, we worked really hard to, to give them that foundation. They also, they love being on Instagram. They love watching movies. They, you know, so, mm-hmm. so we're in two worlds. Well, I, I do love that though, because it just, it's accessible. So it's like, we don't have to be the, the modern hunter gatherer right. to find these experiences that help us feel more human. It can be in small spurts and you have done some really cool things that lasted maybe a weekend or a week and taken that and been able to infuse that into your own everyday life. And so I think that's super encouraging. So tell us where this all started with you. Yeah. Well, I would say um, I wasn't a kid who grew up camping or had any outdoor skills. I I wasn't um, exposed to Girl Scouts, you know, but my family did make it a priority to get us into nature through these, the system of local Metro parks around Columbus, Ohio, where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So I was always, you know, my parents encouraged me, you know, it is important to, to get out and have a relationship with nature. It just wasn't that deep of a relationship. Um, And I was always encouraged to, you know, kind of books are where it's at and studying and going to college and, you know, academic achievement. So I would say, you know, I was always, I was always kind of driven on a professional level. And I was a journalist for many years. I had a background in anthropology after I had children and I was living in San Francisco because my ex-husband had a job there and we were just like, what are we going to do? Right. Most expensive, most difficult housing market in the country. And uh, we were just not able to make it. Right. But we had to stay there because of his job. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll go work in tech. I'll use my skills and I will, you know, find a way to bring in more income so that we can have an affordable way to live here. So I did and I dove in head first. Um, and I was very lucky to be hired with the skills I had. And I was producing content and blogs and updates for all sorts of startup companies and training CEOs about how to speak to the media, hmm. um, talking to venture capitalists. I was really embedded in this sort of 
you know, we could change the world with tech and mm-hmm. everything that we're going to, you know, all of humanity's problems can be solved through some application of AI or machine learning or tech. And listen to that message. I sort of was drawn in for a little while and I was like, okay, cool. Let's see where this goes. You know, it is much easier, far more connected. Um, I can have any information I want with a couple of taps on the phone. I can get food delivered. I can ride around the city. And there was this sort of expectation that like, yes, tech is going to deliver us to this utopia. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of years listening to those messages, I was just like, what? Where's <laughs> where's all this awesome stuff? Where's the sense of well-being and the supportive community and um, the fantastic health? I was looking around and it was like, everybody's overwhelmed. They're stressed out. They have way too many responsibilities. They spend too much time inside, you know, like up to 95% of their time. And I was just like, whoa, the promises of Silicon Valley tech are really not bearing out. And what I'm seeing is like an increasing (laughs) disease, stress, uncomfortable, you know, disconnected society. And so I just had a series of epiphany moments, which I talk about in the book where I was like, whoa, this is not okay. And it's definitely not okay for me. I got to get out of this world. Mm. So it's sort of like, I I imagine myself as like a a domesticated horse inside a horse corral. And off in the distance, I could see these wild horses galloping and playing. And I was like, oh, that's me. I got to get out there. So quit the tech job. Which is really brave. I mean, you say it in one breath, right? I quit the tech job. But that's a really big decision. And some of the things that you said in the book, I just thought it was worded so well. You said, if using tech, working in tech, and promoting tech just lead to more tech, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which equals more stress, what's the point? And even this phrase of techno-optimism is such an interesting thing that you bring up. It's like we really do look at our technologies with rosy glasses and don't tend to look at well, they say like this promise versus peril is what I've heard, but what is the downside? And I think because we're on the, you know, like the train is rolling forward and we're on it, we don't stop to think like, do I actually feel better? Do I actually feel like I have more time? Do I actually feel more connected? And so I think that the way that you were that is such a big deal. So, okay, so then you quit. That's a really big deal. Thank you. Yeah, I guess it, it took some courage, but it was also just sort of like, a, I can't not do this. Hmm. I, I just feel so sick inside the office. Um, and uh, no, what, what you were just saying sort of reminded me of this funny moment that I wasn't able to include in the book. But I remember there was one day I picked up my girls from school and uh, outside of there, we were at an elementary school and there was a middle school next to us. The middle school had just let out. And I watched as all the kids streamed out of the middle school, picked up their phones, right? And many of them went and sat on benches, just staring at their phones. They were talking to each other and playing games, right? At that exact moment, I looked up in the sky and I saw, um, what was it? It was like a hawk and two crows. They were angrily duking it out in the sky, right? And I was like, oh my God. They're the real angry birds. And these kids are missing that entirely because they're playing angry birds on their phone. And then that's kind of dating the episode several years ago. But just this idea that like the real thing still exists in our world. We are just completely um, immersed in these fabrications, these imitations and things that are taking us away from our human nature, which is, you know, to observe, be in connection, be in relationship, use all of our senses. Mm -hmm. So anyway... In the tech job, I, uh, I realized like I have to I have to get training in nature skills because, as I said, I did those. I was like feeling kind of spiritually drawn towards it, like noticing all these things. Like we're we're just so disconnected, we're separated. Um, and then at the same time, listening to all sorts of health advocates who were saying like the closer you can get to a paleo lifestyle. Uh, the better your quality of life. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just, you know, eating the diet of our ancient ancestors or maybe wearing footwear that kind of replicate how they walk on the earth, but it was like an entire lifestyle. How do we completely shift how we're living so that it is fully integrated and you get all of the benefits and you're also kind of redeeming your evolutionary heritage as a homo sapiens, mm-hmm. right? Because we're really, <laughs> we're really not living as we evolved to live. So I knew I needed to get training. Um, And the first thing I did was to become a uh, certified naturalist. And California has a program where you can take this 10-week course 
and learn all about the local flora and fauna and some of the indigenous traditions of your area. And I did that and it just opened up a whole new world, right? It was no longer like the wall of green that you encounter on a hike. Like, okay, what are all these plants? What are all these trees? It was like, oh, I know these people, Mm -hmm. these people out in the woods. Like I recognize them They're I'm getting a relationship with them. And learning about which ones are edible and which ones can be used for different crafts. Wow. Um, so I embarked on this like four year training process. And it also involved um, not just the naturalist course, but primitive skills gatherings, studying with indigenous artisans, traveling around the country, visiting folks who are living, you know, pretty much hundred percent in nature, sourcing all of their supplies and gear and food from nature. In America, that's happening. In the West. So cool. There are many people all over the country and also other countries, Israel, mm-hmm. Northern Europe, South America. Uh, people are drawn to learn this stuff. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a big change. So you're going from working with these CEOs and these startups, and now you're spending time with people who are living off the land. It's so interesting. So tell us about the naturalist program, because I would think that to make a change into, especially like you said, like if you didn't grow up with it. And I would say, I don't have good knowledge of the flora and the fauna too much, you know, not a super in-depth knowledge. You would think that it would take like forever to learn. You know, you look at these people who grow up and and they know that all the animal tracks and they know all that. And obviously nature is great because you can't ever learn all of it. There's always more to learn, but, but 10 weeks, I mean, that's a long time, but it's also not that long of a time, two and a half months. What was that naturalist program like? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say, right. It's like if we kind of compare ourselves to ancient humans or um, indigenous folks who are still living on the land, right. It is, it's that years and years and immersion since childhood and watching your elders use the plants and identify them. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I kind of, I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm always going to be like a baby rewilder. I'm always going to have mm-hmm. knowledge that I have, but you have to start somewhere and you really right. can learn a lot. And uh, yeah, so that course is set up to take you through, it's, it's really well structured and it's like, let's start with geology. Let's understand the rocks and the soil, and then let's move into the botany and the plant, the, you know, the most common uh, plants that you're going to encounter. And then you can always go deeper in any of those areas. Um, and then let's learn about the wildlife and it's sort of divided taxonomically. So you're learning different families of animal groups, right? So like the the herps, the snakes, the frogs, um, the invertebrates, the mm-hmm. insects, you're learning. Um, of course, the mammals are the most compelling to us humans because we so much identify with them. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're these charismatic creatures, the coyote, the bear, the mountain lion, mm-hmm. even the squirrel and the rabbit. Mm-hmm. So we're learning about that. We're having guest speakers. And then the most important part of any naturalist education, of course, are the field trips and the immersion mm. in the outdoors. So we would have these four-hour excursions kind of every other weekend. And super lucky in California to be able to have these wild natural spaces that have been protected by conservationists over the last several decades. So going out and, you know, just learning to identify, look under rocks. Here's a salamander. Let's take a sample of stream water and see what invertebrates are in it. Mm. Finding newts, um, all sorts of, you know, just like that wonder that we have in nature when we're just like, what? I had no idea this existed. Like my understanding of animal behavior is from cartoons. And so to actually be able to observe it and to find (laughs) the tracks of see the nest that it's built, like it's, for me, it was a huge wow. And it it has never stopped, right? Like, I feel like I can always go outside and find a tiny little bit of drama. Like, oh, here's an inchworm on a leaf about to be attacked by a spider. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like nature is full of these stories. And if we just look up from the phones, you'll see the the birds fighting in the sky. And then you'll also see the harmonious relations and how, you know, like lichen is an algae combined with a plant and they're symbiotically working together to create this very weird organism that's all over the woods, right? And which mm-hmm. which can also be used to benefit human health with various medicines. Um, so just it, it it was a wonderful training in the complexity, the relationships, uh, and the observation skills. And I I think a lot of states do have these programs. Um, yeah, that's what I'm curious about. I mean, what a neat thing! What a neat thing to offer. And I, you wonder. I mean, I've never heard of that in my area, so it's definitely spurred on 
for me to look and to see what's out there. I, my friend, I have a, a friend who, a dear friend of mine who went last night on a herb walk and I couldn't go. I wished I could have gone. But even just that kind of thing, like if you start looking for it, then you start to see the opportunities that are out there and you can learn a lot, whether it's a 10 week course or I know you've done some different weekend things too. It just reminds you that there's really fun things to learn out there and people are teaching this stuff. Yeah. Even if, I mean, cause I would imagine that for you, like when you were in the middle of your tech job, there's no thought toward, I wonder if there's a naturalist program in my area mm. or is there a survival skills camp I could go to, but those things do exist. And sometimes you can take your kids and you can take your family. So oh, that's really a cool start. 10 weeks, so you are a certified naturalist. That's fantastic. Yeah. What a neat thing. Are you, you should be so proud. Oh, thank you. <laughs> There's probably hardly any certified naturalist. Okay, so let's talk about the wild skills. Yeah. Because you talk in this book a lot about the wild skills. And definitely, I would say that most people feel that they are irrelevant. Why would you need to tan a hide? Why would you need to learn how to forage? So can we just start with some of the benefits of, like, tell us why they're relevant. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, yeah, of course, when we are in these modern systems and urban societies and cities, like we can get everything we need manufactured for us or provided as a service. And then, you know, that's, that's a lifestyle, but it's ultimately like dependent on all those systems being together. And we got a little taste of what it's like when those systems collapsed during the pandemic. Right. And it's sort of like, oh, shoot. How am I? Uh, okay. None of this stuff is at the grocery store. I don't know how to myself. I think that many people are interested in homesteading and uh, making their own things and possibly foraging and going out and getting what they need because of that little experience with our systems going down. So that's one reason that you might want to you know, invest the time to learn this stuff, but then also because so many people do have emergency situations. Hmm. So there is like a, there's a huge industry of survival skills, people teaching it so that, okay, you're out in the middle of nowhere and your car breaks down. Um, and there's not help coming until the next morning, what are you going to do? Hmm. Uh, or God forbid, some sort of plane crash situation or boat emergency. Like these things do happen. And uh, a lot of folks, and you don't have to be like a crazy prepper to think about it this way, but a lot of folks like to have that baseline of, I will know what to do. I won't be scared. My family will be fine. And so that's another reason to get into learning this stuff. And so, all right, I'll be able to make a fire even if I forgot to put matches in my emergency kit, because I know... Hmm the relevant species here where I can make a fire kit and I've got the skill down where I can twist the bow. It's called a bow drill. And you, you take a spindle and you twist it with the bow against another board and you create a coal that then you can use to light a fire. Wow. So knowing these things for basically because we're dependent on a breakdown at any time, because there may be an emergency, but then also the deeper level of what does it mean if we are humans evolved to do these things, right? For over mm -hmm. 300,000 years, our particular species, Homo sapiens, every member of a clan would know how to find food, how to shelter, uh, how to stay warm, how to find water. So those basic four skills are something that every human up until who knows, I guess for some of us, it would be 200 years ago. For some of us, it's 10,000 years ago. Our ancestors knew how to do that. And so when I think about it in that sort of more spiritual and ancestral way, I think, who am I to completely abandon these things that make us human? Hmm. So I found deeper connection to the materials in the natural world around you. You hmm. have a relationship with them. You know what they smell like, what they taste like, how they feel, how you can work with them. And doing that, you know, that that's physical activity. It's working with your hands. I know you've had several guests who talk about like the importance of that mental process of like the, what was it called? It's like the reward. Yeah. Oh, the, the process something reward. driven reward cycle. Yeah. Where when you're working with your hands and it, yes. then your brain releases dopamine. Exactly. You and so many of us are not working with our hands. Right. We're just typing on computers and we're feeling things that are not natural. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. 
Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside120. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. And side note, we have really lost a lot of strength. Like there are measures of um, people take measurements of like your hand grip strength. And they Mm -hmm. found in a study that over the past 30 years, it's reduced by like some incredible percent because we aren't using our hands in the way that we used to. And they're actually as a species. And, you know, there's all sorts of things like that. Yeah. I think that's super interesting because I had heard that your hand grip strength is somehow related to your longevity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, it is absolutely decreasing, which is unfortunate, but there are things we can do to get it back. Um, and I think by learning these skills and by kind of having more of that self-sufficient attitude, we do become healthier and we become more robust and uh, we're kind of making up for all that lost time sitting on the couch. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so there's a lot of thought there, which is, okay, you could be learning it for a survival situation, but maybe you wouldn't ever need to be in a survival situation. However, it is still enhancing the quality of your life by moving back to these wild skills and trying to reincorporate them into your life. I liked you wrote, you wrote we have lost the conception of those skills and what they can do for us. And they do do so much for us. Like you're talking about how when we do crafts it's building con or craft probably not crafts but like learning a craft yeah builds concentration ingenuity character and it i love this requires more than simple instructions for assembly so you're learning complex things i think so many of things that we do like if you buy you know a cabinet from ikea that's really simple to put together but if you weave a basket there's probably all sorts of different ways that you can weave it and different shapes that you could do. And it's so much more complex. So I loved when you talked about weaving, maybe you could talk about that a little bit as one of the specific skills, but you talked about how as soon as you started to weave, then you would notice other baskets. And you said like all the baskets that we see are made by someone. It's too complicated for a machine. And so you're noticing all the different methods of twist. So that seemed like kind of a, a fun one that maybe people could start there. I mean, anyone could use a basket. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned the word fun because that's what I forgot to talk about, which is that it is so much fun to create this stuff, to find the raw materials for it, to spend the time to kind of slow down your life uh, and then create and spend that time creating Mm -hmm. and then have at the end, this thing that you made totally from scratch. You know, when people say from scratch, it's like, okay, I bought these things at the store to assemble them. Really? That's, that's what it means in our contemporary society. But when you're making something as a wild skill, 
like you are getting it from the earth and you're transforming it. You're adding your own artistry uh, and creativity to it. So yeah, it's super fun. And uh, there's, there's so much to that idea of like harvesting and going out and collecting because then you become an agent in nature. You become a steward. And so you are the one who is selecting, you know, whether you're, let's say you're weaving a basket out of cattails. Yeah. Right. You're going out and you're saying, okay, maybe this area needs to be thinned. Maybe there are too many cattails and it's crowding out, you know, areas for the ducks to, to live. Huh. So I'm going to harvest this and it's going to create something useful for me, but it's also going to create something useful for the ecosystem. And there's a lot of thought in, in this primitive skills world about using invasive species mm-hmm. for these projects and for all of these uh, things, you know, whether they're to eat or to use in um, crafts, et cetera, by thinning out those areas that have been completely overgrown by various invasives. And I'm thinking about Himalayan blackberry, <laughs> which is basically taken over the entire West Coast, but to be able to use that to then make something useful. And if we could all get in the habit of going out and harvesting that Blackberry, wear leather gloves, kind of prickly, but this idea that we we can then have a positive impact on the environment rather than the destructive one that we're kind of accustomed to humans having these days because of our extractive industrial methods, uh, by wild crafting, you can really have that that positive impact. Yeah. You had a story in there about it was someone and there was like the ivy was growing. Yes. And it was like, well, we're going to come in and we're going to kill it with some pesticides. And the wisdom was like, well, no, use the stuff, figure out how you can use it, but do it in a gentler way. And, and notice it, cattails is really interesting because cattails, I found it's really hard to get to them. Mm. Like you're kind of going through like a bog or, a, you know, they're always back into the water. So what a cool thing. Like you would have such a full body experience to make a basket out of cattails because you'd have to go get them. And then you could do these different weaving methods of all of these wild skills. So you talked about fire building in the book. You talk about foraging, digging roots. I love that when you said the wildest meal I'd ever made and I felt rich. It's so cool. So the foraging, the high tanning making tools, weaving, which of these is like a top favorite for you? Yeah, I would say I have become basically addicted to foraging. <laughs> and it's it's something that I'm doing. I'm going out and I'm doing it almost every day. I try to eat something wild every day. What's amazing about it is that I think it is a skill everyone can pick up. If you can learn to identify a couple of those uh, nutritious yet invasive weeds in your neighborhood um, where people haven't sprayed then you can collect them, add them to your salads, add them to your soups. There's just, there's so many benefits because you're saving money on buying greens. And then Mm -hmm. the fact that these are wild foods that you've collected means that they haven't been altered by generations of human genetic manipulation. I'm not talking about GMOs. I'm just talking about how we groom plants to be more flavorful. And by doing that, sometimes we rip out the nutrition that was once um, part of these plants. So by by domesticating them, we're kind of making them, you know, like uh, what would you say? They're just they're they're less powerful in our in our systems. They have less nutrition. So there's been studies done that says that you know if you can find the wild dandelions and um, wild mustard all sorts of other edibles in whatever area you're living in, those are going to have more nutrition than the greens you buy in the grocery store. Plus you're doing that favor to nature and pulling out the stuff that is already very abundant, has no problem reproducing uh, and you're using it for a good purpose. So I must wonder if it just helps with your overall eating habits because we, we just had the experience where we went to a wedding and it was a farm to table dinner, which is so idyllic don't you think like oh a farm to table everyone talks about it totally but it it wasn't i don't want to say it wasn't very good because that's not the right word but it wasn't quite as well like it wasn't addictive because i don't i don't really know how to put it into words it's almost like i i left feeling like maybe this is why we overeat because it was a little bit more bland. Ah, yeah. I hope the person, I hope, I don't quite know what to say. Maybe I should cut this part out. Uh, my point <laughs> is, is that like we, we manipulate our food so much, I guess is my point, right? And so then maybe we've lost our taste for some of these simpler, more natural things, I guess is, is sort of where I'm going with it. And I think we would be healthier if we had an affinity for more of these natural things. 
I think you were so right. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. There's also studies that have shown that we've lost a lot of, yeah, we've lost these tastes that we used to kind of crave or know that were good for us. Things like bitters. Mm. So bitters have a, a really good function in your digestive system. Uh, and they can also like kind of trigger that cascade of hormones that, right, you don't overeat because you're like, okay, this food was bitter. I'm going to stop. But I know the, the nutrition and it was good for me. Right. So a lot of the weeds that you'll collect do have that element of bitterness. They have a spiciness. Um, they have strong tastes. And right, we, we've groomed those out of our diet, basically, because we prefer the salt, the fat, the sugar. And you won't find those things so abundant in nature. So yeah, it, it's definitely all tied with nutrition, fitness, health. And then by going out and collecting this, you're also getting activity, you're getting sunshine, yeah. uh, you're getting that experience of being outdoors. So, you know, to me, I've always hated grocery shopping. I, I don't enjoy the fluorescent lights, the music, the, the mm -hmm. fact that there's so much choice and it's sort of like an embarrassment. It's like, oh my God, not every place in the world has this much abundant food pre-packaged for us. And, and when you think about it, it's like half the stuff you're buying will eventually be trash because it's all the packaging. So for me, I've just, yeah, I just really relish the fact that I, I can go out there and find at least some food, maybe a meal a day that has nothing to do with any of that. And it's also hopefully benefiting the environment. And there are rules. There's there's rules to foraging, right? Like you have to sure. learn how to do it properly. You don't want to take everything of some desirable food because you got to leave it for the wildlife and you have to let it reproduce. Mm -hmm. So there's ethics to it. Um, but I would encourage people, if it sounds interesting, you know, just learn a couple edible plants in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's a fun, really fun to teach your kids to do that. My daughter has gotten so accustomed to eating wild food when we're out on a hike, uh, that I don't even bring food anymore. Cause I know she's going to find berries. She's going to dig things up. Wow. Um, she's gone and like even researched other plants that I didn't know about. And she's like, mom, this soap root here, like the native people of the region, they used to use it like onions. And she went and dug it out and she cooked it up for us. And we were like, wow, this is awesome. So kids can get super into foraging. Wow. Um, and you just have to, tell them the rules, you know, because some plants can harm you. You got to know what you're doing. Always check with mom before you pick something. Mm -hmm. um, don't just put it into your mouth. But once you learn those, I think it's it's a whole new world to explore. And it's a, it's a total new thing to get out of the outside. Wow. I mean, that definitely sounds enticing. I can see why that would be your top favorite of some of these different skills. You know, it's one of those things that it adds like the element of surprise too. So, you know, we I'm not good at foraging, but we definitely like the mulberries. Yeah. But you're in season right now. And like every once in a while, you'll find, I don't know, there's that song that's like, here we go around the mulberry bush, but they kind of look like a tree. So I'm not quite sure if it's a tree or a bush. I don't even, maybe they're not even mulberries, but anyway, they turn <laughs> like this dark purple black and they're delicious. And we have one just in the neighborhood across the street that's kind of just on the side of someone's property and no one's really out there eating them. And so like, we'll take a walk by and grab a couple and, and it's exciting. Cause like, if you find it, like we've been different places where you're out on a walk or you're somewhere new and you find that and you're so excited. So it does add in that element of novelty. Like Katie Bowman talks about stacking. Yep, like yep. she talks about like, like let's take one activity and can that one activity, can it satisfy, like you're talking about nutrition. You're also talking about community. You're talking about the element of surprise. You're talking about sunshine. You're talking about movement. All of it is wrapped up in this one thing called foraging. And it's just hitting a lot of needs through one activity. That's Absolutely. really cool. What are a couple yeah. things that you might find and eat? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, well, and it depends on the time of year. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like, so I know the entire season is different and I sort of live in two different places. I have a place in the Sierra foothills, but then my kids go to school in the East Bay, which is about a hundred miles difference. So I have these two ecosystems I'm frequently in and I know the seasonal cycles. So this time of year, yeah, the berries are popping. So you can go out and you can get um, thimbleberry, blackberry. What else is going on? We've got all sorts of greens that are still in abundance. Um, earlier in the spring, I love to go out and harvest something called miner's lettuce, mm. which is just this really, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's sort of like just a neutral lettuce taste, but this wonderful sort of spongy texture. And it's called miner's lettuce because it was a survival food for the 49ers, the gold miners in this area. And everybody knew, okay. Oh, wow. Well, so then you're learning yeah. history. That's yeah. so neat. Yeah, no, it's great. Miner's um, lettuce. Wow. Yeah. 
And in the winter, when the rains start, uh, you can start foraging for mushrooms. And that really is that element of surprise that you were talking about, because you never know what fungi are going to be growing. Um, and maybe you'll happen upon this monster cache of oyster mushrooms, right? And everybody's had those. They're fantastic fried up with butter. And if you can go out on, on some land or in a park and find those oysters, I mean, that is that just makes your day. And so, yeah, so many Aww. other edibles. But yeah, the entire year. That was a huge statement to say that just makes your day. Because here we've moved from the techno optimism, right? To the, hey, if you can find a couple mushrooms, <laughs> <laughs> that's what living is all about. So I, I, it's really neat to read through your story, the change from one type of living to another. And it, like you said, it's not a full change, but it's just a partial change. And to see how much fulfillment that you found out of it. One of the things that you talk about in the book, which I would imagine was really hard to write about, is about your mom. Mm -hmm. And your mom had MS. You say she endured one full generation from the birth of her daughter to the birth of her granddaughter. And you've been doing some research on how moving back to a wild lifestyle or a wilder lifestyle may help with some degenerative disease. Mm -hmm. uh, you could tell me a little bit about your story, what maybe how that really pushed you on to look and to research a little bit more and yeah, and what have you found? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had a wonderful relationship with my mother. She was fun, vivacious, energetic, but she did get multiple sclerosis shortly after my birth. So even though she was quite young when she had me. She was 24. But uh, my childhood was definitely denoted by her decline. And so different moments of her sort of losing the ability to walk for a few weeks, regaining it, but then losing it again. Mm. Um, issues with her vision, all sorts of things can happen with MS. And really, the origin of it is still pretty unknown. Yeah. But what we do know is that um, all sorts of indigenous groups and hunter-gatherer clans, they don't get autoimmune diseases like that. Mm. And so there has to be something in the Western civilized lifestyle that is contributing to that disease, other autoimmune diseases. And then we also know, are, you know that all the top causes of death in the Western world are pretty much lifestyle-based. And I'm not a doctor, not a scientist, so I don't want to talk too much about all that stuff. But but just the basic fact that like our original lifestyle was not as diseased. Um, mm. th there were just so many health benefits woven into stacked, as you said, I love Katie Bowman, mm -hmm. um, stacked into daily life such that you're not, you're not really missing exercise. Like so many of us can do, you're not really missing yeah. that fundamental omega three, uh, nutrient in your diet. So I was, I was, I lost my mother six months after I had my first daughter. And so that was a very poignant thing. Like she was able to meet her first grandchild, which meant so much to her, really brought yeah. closure to her life, which she knew was ending. But then there I was becoming a mother without a yeah. mother to tell me what to do. Yeah. And uh, so the grief was immense. And it was, and it's, you know, to this day now, it's been 13 years since we lost her, but, but we feel that, that lack. And um, yeah. I was searching for answers. I was like, well, I don't want to leave my kids early the way my mom left. Um, what can I do? You know, and, and nothing is certain in life. Absolutely. Sure. We can't have total control, but I felt so connected to the fact that, okay, well, mom had this disease. That's a function of civilization. I can do my best to avoid the conditions that might have led to what, what contributed to her loss of her life. So then I looked into folks who are basically treating their autoimmune conditions with diet, with exercise, with time outside, with all of these holistic life, life ways that come from how we as humans evolved. And I saw that they were able to, in many cases, reverse their symptoms, you know, go into complete remission through all sorts of not really innovations, just looking back at traditional diets and hmm. implementing that. So like putting more seaweed, um, animal fats. Isn't that interesting? It's like, what would you call that? It's actually such a good point to say it's not an innovation. It's going backwards. I love the way you worded that. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? 
The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. No, we call it ancestral, right? It's ancestral medicine. It's ancestral diet. And it's ancestral lifestyle. And that. I think that was such an interesting part of it is that what you really get through your book, which is called Why We Need to Be Wild, what you really get through that is that I think a lot of times we just take the diet piece. How many times have you heard paleo, 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 and it's just the diet. But in this book, you're saying, no, it's, it's so much more. It's these skills. It's the community. In, when you're talking about your mom and, and people who are in her generation, you say she was the first generation to be mostly raised indoors. You know, that childhood is mostly spent sitting in chairs. And isn't that the truth? So I like that you're looking at it from this holistic point of view that it's not just the food, it's also the movement and it's also the weaving and it's also the dopamine release from working with our hands and all of these things work together. It's definitely thought provoking. Excellent. Thank you. I'm so glad. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm not the only one saying this at all. Like there's, I mean, that was, that was what was so heartening to discover was that there were entire communities and gatherings of like a thousand people coming together Mm. to live with these principles, even if just for a short period of time, even if it's just for a week. And then there are skills, schools that are teaching these to people where you can go spend, you know, whether it's a week or it's nine months training in naturalist studies and looking at the health benefits of an ancestral lifestyle. So the resources are out there, the communities out there. I just really wanted to shine a spot, a spotlight on it, um, you know, as a journalist and as someone who was also integrating this stuff into my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is neat to be made aware of all the things that are out there and that sometimes it's not going to take some massive commitment that you can put a weekend a year toward it and really find some significant life change. One of my favorite parts, Jessica, in the book was uh, when they were like talking about knowledge and I usually put down page numbers. It was, it was like all this <laughs> knowledge, like you think that we spend a lot of time outside, right? So you think, you know, certain things, but then this one, like this list of knowledge, and it was like, describe the odor of red fox urine. Uh-huh. And if the wind is blowing from the southeast, what will the weather be like tomorrow morning? And what type of caterpillar feeds on cherry? And how are willow cat skins pollinated? I mean, this list of questions actually was fascinating because it reminds you that there is a depth of information to be learned outside too. I think we discount that. We discount it as a learning environment. Mm. But, I, you know, I took those questions on page 86 from your book 
about, well, you say the test to qualify as a neighborhood native is hard. Mm-hmm. I thought that was such a, a big sentence. It's like, well, we think we know, but then you have these list of questions. I was like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't. And obviously, depending on where you live, your questions are going to be different. But like, I would have no idea what types of rock in your area can be used for making durable arrowheads. <laughs> right. It does remind you that people had a wealth of knowledge and we've lost a lot of it. And hey, probably we should maybe get a little bit of that back. Right. Yeah. And I should say that is, uh, that's, that's a classic in kind of wilderness training. It comes from a guy named John Young, who is a very famous, you know, wild skills practitioner and teacher who learned from Tom Brown, who started the first tracker school. So he's in this like lineage of folks who've been immersed in this type of knowledge. And he would go around and offer this test to people. Oh, you think you know your neighborhood? You think you know what's going on outside? Well, what about <laughs> these questions? What does the fox urine smell like? Yeah. <laughs> Describe it. <laughs> and I'm nowhere near that. I mean, he's got this whole naturalist training program where you go and you spend hours and hours in observation, learning those types of little nuggets. But the thing is, is that once you do get even just a little bit more of that information, you can have a more rewarding experience outside and you can definitely stay out there, find sustenance, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, entertain yourself, right? Because the, the more you train in that skill of observation and just sitting and being quiet and, oh, here comes a hummingbird and, oh, what are the ants doing under me? Um, and I have many moments that I talk about in the book where it's like, oh, just sitting and observing you can learn so much. Um, and especially if you're outside and that's not the case if you're inside at all. Right. I mean, it's not, it's not a rich living environment. So you're just going to get bored. Oh, I love that phrase, a rich living environment. You have Memento Mori in this book. And I want to tell you, Jesse, you're the third book I've read this year that talks about Memento Mori, which it must be a thing that Ah. really like people are zeroing in on that we have to be motivated and have things that remind us to do what we really want to do in life. So I love that that was in there. Let's wrap up with this survival week. I love this whole concept of that, you know, you do this survival week and you write nothing we had yet experienced (laughs) during the survival survival week challenged us as much as caring for our kids. So you're talking about like, you know, going hungry, we're sleeping in the rain, we're alone in the forest, but these don't even approach the level of difficulty of giving birth and nurturing children and being a mom is harder than survival. But then what you say, which I thought was so cool, was that mothers and attorneys and doctors actually are well suited for some of these hard things because they've already done a bunch of grueling work. Mm-hmm. Yes. I thought that was encouraging. Yes. It was so encouraging. And the thing is, is right. There were like four other mothers with me in this week long survival course that we did up in Washington a week with, you know, we didn't know where our food was coming from, nothing to sleep on, just one change of clothes, a knife, you know, basic stuff. And then a bunch of other folks, but what I found was so interesting was like when we mothers got together to chat as we do, we were like, yeah, no, this isn't, I mean, this is hard. This is challenging, but no, it, it compares. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is nothing like what it's like to have like a newborn and a toddler and husband's traveling and you've got to make dinner and you get sick. I mean, all of these challenges that we've all fought as moms yeah. in today's society with, without the support we really need without, you know, the resources that we might've had at another time and place, right? Like we have become so tough that we're, we're sort of known as, uh, exceptional participants in these wilderness skills programs. So yeah, I totally vibed (laughs) on that because I was like, nobody sees how heroic we moms can be on the day to day. And you know, the fact that like, yeah, this job never stops. It's 2am, it's 6am, it's 10am, like you're still doing it, right? Uh, You never get a break unless you deliberately ask for it or plan it, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we all know what it's like to to have that grueling schedule, just like a doctor in residency or like a lawyer preparing a brief for the Supreme Court. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. this is grueling. It's tough. And yet, these women and myself, we were like, we're up for another challenge. Yeah, You know, it's not just like, we're content to do the hard work of mothering. It's like, no, we got to take it a step further and, and uh, figure out how to do it in the woods. So, mm-hmm. so that was, yeah, really heartening. And I think it's a great message for moms everywhere. Like, hey, what you're doing is so heroic. You're not getting the credit that you should. And I wanted to acknowledge that in the book. 
Yeah, I loved it. Like they said, moms, attorneys, and doctors are the top performing participants yes. we get. <laughs> yeah, I know. How gratifying. Yeah, yeah seriously. Yeah, so because, you know, you never know how your skill set that you learn as a mom would translate into other situations, and they'll translate well into survival situations. We're tough, so we can handle a lot, a lot of sleep deprivation. I love that part of the book. Well, Jessica, congrats. Congrats is such a huge accomplishment to write a book, to have a new book out there, Why We Need to Be Wild, One Woman's Quest for Ancient Human Answers to 21st Century Problems. Such a cool concept. Really neat to see your story played out throughout the book. We always end our podcast with the same question. And that question is, what's a favorite memory from your childhood that was outside? Yeah, I love this question. I it was a snowy winter day. I was about 12 or 11, and I was with my six-year-old brother at the time in a nature park near our house. And my parents had taken us on a walk, but they decided to go home. And I said, no, I want to stay out here. This is so magical with all this snow. And it was the first day that I ever left the trail. So the snow made it possible to walk over an area that was like usually bramble yeah. and scratchy things. And I wanted to avoid and go down to the creek. Um, and so my brother and I ended up spending a couple of hours just following the creek because we could that day in the snow. And ever since then, I've been somebody who likes to go off trail <laughs> because wow. I know that a lot of the magic can be found if you leave that beaten path. You know, if it's safe, if it's good. And it, it all yeah. traces back to that one day where I had this idea like, hey, let's let's go over here. We can today. We can do it. And then we just went out. So yeah, and I still do that. You know, I love to mm -hmm. go on my nature wander every day and sometimes just peek around, go off the trail, go down by the stream, see what the animals have been doing. And yeah. it brings me so much joy. It brings me so much joy to do that. That's so cool that you can remember the first time that you did it. And Dr. Peter Gray, he talks about that in Free to Learn. He talks about how that we really have these sweet memories from childhood, especially when we got to do things on our own. Yeah. Maybe away from a parent's eye and to yes. feel that freedom and to feel that someone else had enough confidence in us to let us go do that for however long. So what a great story, Jessica. It's been such an honor to get to talk with you. Congrats on your new book. And thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Thank you so much. It's just a delight to talk to you. Your energy is so supportive and wonderful. And yeah, thank you. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.